My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We continue our time of prayer in your presence, Lord. Despite the heat and uh, the somewhat uncomfortable situation, we can use all this as an occasion to really give of ourselves more to you in this time. I was reading recently a story of a priest from the Archdiocese of Washington. His name is Carter Griffin, and apparently was raised as a Presbyterian, and he converted uh, to Catholicism while attending Princeton University. This is what he says in his book, My big mistake was attending Catholic Mass. That was my worst mistake. It began innocently enough, visiting a Catholic friend who attended a Southern University, a young woman that I wanted to impress by my large-minded desire to go to church with her. A large-minded desire. But my life has never been the same since that April Sunday of 1992. The next day, returning to New Jersey where I attended college, I had eight hours to ponder the experience of that Mass. It made an indelible impression And upon returning to the dormitory, I asked a Catholic friend of mine to take me to his parish priest. I had some questions that needed answering. And well, one can imagine the rest of the of the of the sort of process. But basically, that's why he wrote his book called Why Celibacy. And and he later also wrote a famous article called celibacy is the answer, not the problem. And there too he recounts that he had lived as a child in Brazil and went to an English-speaking Catholic school. He said, I I vividly recall being one of the few children who were not able to receive Holy Communion. He's a Presbyterian. During our, our weekly Mass, It was that hunger to receive our Lord that would one day blossom into the grace of conversion and the faith to believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Then he went back to the U.S., he recounts, and he became kind of numb to the spirit. He says, not a big sinner, but certainly not interested in being a saint, he said. I was, he said, your average nice guy. Then came that unforgettable experience of Mass. Very similar to the experience that André Frossard had where he was looking for a friend in Paris 
uh, to meet him in front of this church and he walked into the church and suddenly he stood there in front of the Blessed Sacrament, not knowing that it was a Blessed Sacrament. He was an atheist. And he said, I found myself in the presence of a friend who is not from this world. I entered that church an atheist and I left completely convinced of the truth of the Roman Catholic faith. And, and for Carter Griffin, now Father Carter Griffin, it was the experience of that mass, that unforgettable, unforgettable experience. And so as a result of that, he began a kind of a period of myth-busting by reading, reading many things. And slowly but surely, he, he was chatting with a priest and, and um, this priest asked him that maybe, maybe God was asking him something more. And he, when he said, when he heard the, the more, he immediately understood what this meant. And for him, it was a burden that seemed too, too, too heavy on him. But he was full of thanksgiving that, that this priest should have mentioned this. Maybe God is asking you more. He was filled with thanksgiving that God should have teased this, you could say, teased this generosity out of him. He says he later went into the Navy. He was on a destroyer in the Atlantic fleet and he was accepted in law school and then eventually decided to go into the seminary and eventually went to the North American College in Rome and he was ordained, he was ordained in 2004. And in his whole account he says, this was more than a feeling, my heart is filled now with gratitude and he lifts the reasons for his gratitude and central to that gratitude of course is the joy he has in being able to celebrate the Eucharist. This is the heart too of our daily Eucharist, celebration of the Holy Mass because after all the Eucharist is to give thanks. We should extend in particular way that Thanksgiving after Mass. You could say in preparation to Mass, but especially after Mass. You know, those, those prayers by St. Thomas Aquinas, those prayers of St. Bonaventure, after we've received our Lord. So that we can protect that time of Thanksgiving. I know there's often reasons the lady in the sacristy wants to ask us something or this or that. There's demands on us. But it helps us a lot to protect that time. And it is interesting to focus on this experience of conversion and, and, to, and, and on the effect of that, of that mass on this fellow and on so many others. But that mass that this priest, this eventual priest, had experienced, who said it was unforgettable, who was that priest who celebrated that mass? It was a mass that he, he would never forget and would eventually lead to his conversion, would eventually lead to his own priesthood. Who was that priest who celebrated that Mass? Father so-and-so. Father who knows who. Well, that priest has been completely forgotten. Nobody knows his name. It's not even mentioned in the book. Nobody remembers. But that priest 
was docile in the hands of an artist. Probably that priest did not take on excessive protagonism. He did not have a very original mass as such. Maybe he was a lousy singer. Probably that priest, whoever he was, just let himself be guided by the hands of the artists. You know, think, think of St. Bridget. She was filled with thanksgiving when she considered the passion of our Lord or when she had those vis visions of the nativity and uh, she had established that convent next to Palazzo Farnese in Rome. And she was, she was just completely filled with thanksgiving every time she was able to go to Mass as well. And this is perhaps something we haven't uh, emphasized enough the spirit of thanksgiving that should be there present at every Mass. Think of the people of Israel who broke out in thanksgiving. Cantemos Domino, Domino, Glorioso Eni, Magnificatus Est, Ecum et Ascensorum Deicet in Mare. I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed, glorious. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Maybe we have horse and rider in our head all the things that we have to do, all the onslaughts of our imagination. We have to throw all that into the sea. Cantemus dominum. Dominum. Hmm? That was a song, song, a song of jubilation after Moses had extended his arm over the sea as he was acting precisely as God's vicar and the wind of nature blew and separated the waters. This famous scene of this, the parting of the Red Sea. And everybody was in awe at God's power at being able to do that and saving them. And that led to that marvelous, that marvelous hymn of thanksgiving, which we also sing beautifully at the Easter Vigil. So when we consider our Mass, the root and center of our interior life, and certainly for a priest, perhaps we can emphasize or see to what extent we have been thankful to what extent we have been really emphasizing the aspect of thanksgiving? Because you know, we, can know, we know that thankful souls are happy souls. Thankful priests are happy priests. Because the love of gratitude would that we be grateful souls, right? grateful priests. But the love that comes from gratitude is, never, is, is, is always a mindful love. A grateful love is a mindful love. It ponders things. It lays them up in the heart. As our Blessed Mother did. When she pondered those things in her heart, she was grateful. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. When we are thanks, thankful, we meditate fondly on the past, as Jacob did. We sing the old actions of mercy of, in, 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 God's, in our life, and we make a lot of God's mercy like King David did. King David uh, sang the mercies of the Lord as he as we read in today's, uh, 
in, in today's uh, breviary, in today's morning, offer, morning uh, prayer. I don't know if you've had the chance yet to read uh, Cardinal Sarah's uh, passionate discussion of celibacy in his book co-authored with Pope Benedict titled uh, From the Depths of Our Hearts. It's a beautiful book. Uh, and uh, he hears arguments in favor of married clergy that, that would supposedly facilitate the Eucharist for those uh, remote areas in the Amazon or wherever else. And that's, that's, the, that's the central argument behind why we should allow for married clergy, you know, because it would allow, would facilitate the, the Eucharist to, to whatever, in these difficult places where there are no priests. But if we had married priests, well, then we could ordain so-and-so and so-and-so in that area, and then we could have the Eucharist. That's the argument. But that that's, seems to suggest that we have a right to the Eucharist. He says, the priesthood is a gift that is received as the incarnation of the Word is received. The priesthood is received as a gift. It is neither a right nor an obligation. A community that was formed according to the idea of a, quote, right to the Eucharist would no longer be a disciple of Christ. As its name indicates, the Eucharist is thanksgiving, a gratuitous gift, a merciful present. The Eucharistic presence is received with wonder and joy as an unmerited gift. Any believer who claims it as his due shows that he is incapable of understanding it. This is Cardinal Serrano. It's not our due. It's a gift. Our priesthood is a gift. The Eucharist is a gift. The Holy Mass is a gift. He says, I am persuaded that the Christian communities of Amazonia themselves do not think along the lines of Eucharistic demands. I think rather that these topics are obsessions that stem from theological milieus at universities. We are dealing with ideologies developed by a few theologians, or rather, sorcerer's apprentices. That's really like bang. Sorcerer's apprentices who wish to utilize the distress of poor peoples as an experimental laboratory of their clever plans. He certainly has, uh, he has a way with words uh, and imagery, right? So let us see how mindful we are of this daily, you could say this daily duty. How mindful indeed am I of my own apostolic celibacy? It is really this which makes me a total gift to the church, the church being my spouse, just as a husband would give himself totally to his wife. We have given ourselves totally to our spouse, the church. So let's ask, how, how is my daily mass that I celebrate with that spirit of thanksgiving? Perhaps, perhaps we, we can take care of preparing it. What effort do I put into it? Am I distracted? Am I thinking about other things? Do I remember the intention well? 
I read recently an account of uh, <clears throat> the catechesis that uh, Saint Josemaria had in 1972 when he went to uh, to Spain. He went to Spain and Portugal. At one point, he went uh, south of, of Spain to Pozalberro in Jerez de la Frontera in the southern part of Spain. And uh, there was an Andalusian there, a, a fellow with a very thick Andalusian accent where they don't pronounce the S's at all. But anyway, the, he was an Andalusian. And, uh, and this fellow, as our father was there in a get-together, Sindos Maria was there, he asked him, how does the father live the holy sacrifice of the mass, of the altar? And uh, our founder kind of joked about the man's inquisitiveness. He said, my mass is never the same from one day to the next. My Mass is never the same from one day to the next. Every day I linger. I linger in a different way on this prayer or that offering or that other petition. I linger. The Mass, which for me is Opus Dei, work of God, it wears me out. It exhausts me. I thank God that this is so. It is a wonderful divine burden because it is not I, but He, God, who carries it. All priests, he continues, all priests, be we sinners like me or saints as some are, are never ourselves. We are never ourselves. It is Christ who renews his sacrifice of Calvary on the altar. I don't, quote, preside over anything. I am Christ at the altar. I consecrate in persona Christi in the person of Christ because I give him my body, I give him my voice, I give him my poor heart, which has so often been stained, but which I want to purify. You know, the, the deep sense of, you could say, handing over his body, his voice, over to Christ, right? This, this deep supernatural sense that he was truly another Christ. After he had said that, in this get-together, intense silence reigned after he said that. And... Uh, the father tried to locate the person who asked the question in the crowd. He had difficulty seeing and he was looking around in the crowd and he couldn't really find him. And finally, he found him. And in his own Aragonese accent, because he had just spoken to an Andaluth, now he, in his own Aragonese accent, he said, hey, now you know as much as I do. And he stretched out his right hand and, his, and with his palm, like a, like a beggar pleading for alms, he said, Won't you help me to say the Mass even when I'm not here? Can you understand how it exhausts me? And he, he sort of stretched out his hands, kind of like, Won't you help me? 
So we, we have to, in some ways, experience that exhaustion. We ask our Lord now, help me to experience that exhaustion. Because in some way, in some mysterious way, I'm becoming, I'm, I'm taking on the weight of the cross. I'm, I'm taking on that role, not just that role, the, the identity with you, Lord. And people, people notice when there is no longer our personal protagonism, but the protagonism of Christ. This is what we ask for, to, dis, to destroy, I don't know if that's the right word, but to, to mitigate my own personal protagonism, whether it's through my voice or through attention drawn to myself, right? I mean, altars are, you know, when you look at the way altars are built today and with the light there, we're right there front and center. Everybody notices, everybody watches us. But we must rectify, rectify the intention. Lord, I want all to be paying attention to you. The best thing that could happen to us is that we go and celebrate a mass somewhere and we preach and, um, and then somebody like Carter Griffin is totally taken aback by what we've done, maybe by our celebration of the mass or by our, or our homily or something. And they're totally blown away and somebody asks that person, wow, so you were really affected by that Mass. Who was the priest who celebrated Mass? And the person will simply say, I don't remember. I don't know. That's the best thing that could happen. I don't remember. He doesn't mention the priest that celebrated, Carter Griffin, that is, who celebrated the Mass that completely changed his life. Jose Maria Casiado, met St. Josemaria in 1939. And of course, he was quite impressed by the fact that masses in those days that were actually dialogued by all the people in the congregation, not just the server. In those days, in the, in the 30s and 40s, it was just the server that responded, you know, Dominus Vobiscum et Com Spiritu Tua. It was just the server, and the people didn't say anything. They would just sit there passively. But in the orators, and the masses that St. Josemaria um, presided, you could say, uh, he, he had them actively participate. There was reverence, he noticed. There was dignity. He even noticed the use of a Gothic chasuble, which seemed uh, very elegant to him, dignified. He said, this is Jose Maria Casiado. So this is the brother of Pedro Casiado. Pedro Casiado eventually went to, to Mexico. Jose Maria Casiado became an expert in, uh, in scripture scholar or studies. He said, when Saint Josemaria was celebrating mass with his clear intonation, well-marked pauses and unconcealed recollection and devotion, being at mass in Gener generated deep sincere piety. I cannot do less than state after all these years that those masses of the Father led me to love the church's liturgy and to, to participate in the Holy Sacrifice with a new attitude. The transcendence of the action being celebrated was something we could see, hear, and touch. It was, it was something 
It was something that really affected him. He, he could see it, hear it, and touch it. And uh, for us too, the reverence of the ceremonies, the rites, uh, always have to be done in conformity with their meaning. All the things we do have a meaning, have a purpose. The meaning of the offertory, the meaning of the sign of peace, the penitential rite, the gloria, everything has a meaning. And we must be conscious and aware of what we're doing. Cardinal Sarah has said that we should give more time to silence. He says that in many churches there's just not time given to silence. Just a pause before, you know, let us pray. Silence. Just a bit of silence. Let people recollect. Even, a, you could say, a kind of a noticeable silence. He said, why silence? He said there, there's bad silence, like omissions in speech. There's bad silence in like the silent treatment, like I'm not talking to you, I'm not answering you, that's, that's bad silence. But the real reason for silence in the liturgy is that God acts in silence. You just simply say, let us pray. And in that, I mean, I'm not going to tell you exactly how many seconds you're supposed to go, but, but in that silence after the let us pray, our Lord is, he's going into the soul, he's, he's doing something. He's active. But if we say, let us pray, God the Father, my, blah, 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 you know, we haven't given them time, we haven't given them an occasion. He says, silence is important, an important component of the liturgy. And he talks about every moment, uh, the penitential rite, there's a silence, after the let us pray, the preparation of the gifts. Let it really become a truly fruitful silence. So, we, well, we ask for this, and each one of us can adapt this in our own way, in how we can do this. Um, he said, if I just have here a passage about the, the very fruitful nature of silence, he says, if we see the preparation not as a pragmatic external action, you know, the preparation of the gifts, it's not a pragmatic external action, I had to get the cruets over there, or the, but as an essentially interior process. We ourselves are, or should be, the real gift through our sharing in Jesus Christ, Christ's act of self-offering to the Father. Right? The preparation of the gifts. We have people come, and sometimes the priest greets the uh, servers and the families, and okay, what are you gonna do? You're gonna have to, but it's, it's preparing your, your, your self-preparation. You pour the wine into the, into the chalice, you make sure the edges of the chalice are clean. So it's, again, it's meant to, so nothing external comes in and disturbs. It's all meant to prepare ourselves because I'm about to act in persona Christi. And I want to be effective, Lord. We know that Jesus, you give yourself completely for our needs in the Eucharist, just like you showed compassion on the crowds who are hungering, three days without anything to eat. Let's ask for this compassion for the crowds. Let's ask for this new art, you could say, call it that, the art of celebrating. And our Blessed Mother, our Queen, when she sees us there at the altar, she will help us really to be, you know, to, you could say, to, to, to really be very supernatural and to ponder these things also 
in our heart. She'll intercede for us and make, maybe without us knowing, other people who will have assisted at Mass, their lives will be transformed in some way, like Carter Griffin. Who knows how much that can happen if we do it with love, truly in persona Christi. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.